welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you very much for taking the time to join today. My name is Alex Schneider, and I'm a client advisor for North America Institutional here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I'm excited to be joined by my colleague, Gary Zivalapalli, portfolio manager within the U.S. Equities Group. We're going to discuss what we're seeing in the market, how it's impacting U.S. equities, our views on the large cap growth sector, and opportunities and risks that investors should consider going forward. With that, let's get started. So, Gary, 2020 has been quite the year so far. We're only two-thirds of the way through it. Between the race for the cure for COVID, the presidential election coming up, we expect the volatile ride to continue. Over the last 15 years, you've been managing a large-cap growth portfolio, You've seen a lot of different market environments, and during all those different market environments, you've still managed to produce stop decile returns across nearly all time frames. You don't produce those types of returns in all those different environments without studying the entire market and occasionally taking views that might be a little outside of the realm of what the majority are thinking, which leads me to my first question. The S&P 500 reached all-time highs last week. It hit them again yesterday. Last I checked about 10 minutes ago, we were flirting with it again. And just about 12 months ago, you published a paper highlighting that we are in a circular bull market with potential for the S&P to reach 10,000 by early 2030s, which would make, I think, everyone on this call very happy. Has your view on this changed at all, given the recent environment? Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on the call. And I want to add my thanks to everyone who's joining in. No, my thoughts on that have not changed. It was meant to be a long-term ball piece. And I'm going to go over a few of the elements of that. And for those of you who may be interested and haven't seen it, I suggest you might reach out to your J.P. Morgan contact and they can make sure that you get a copy of the white paper. But the four key elements to the S&P 10,000 view start with the historical pattern of market returns. And what I posit in the paper is that roughly over the last 100 years, we've had periods of well above average returns, prolonged periods, which I call secular bull markets, and then prolonged periods of well below historical average returns, which I call secular bear markets. Now, these periods tend to last somewhere between 16 and 20 years, so they tend to be quite long from most investors' perspective. And the last secular bull market we had, in my view, was from 1982, the year 2000, And then from the year 2000, when the S&P peaked at 15.50 until 2016, when it bottomed in February at roughly 1,800, you had a 16-year period where the market averaged less than 1% price appreciation. Now, that's quite comparable to prior periods like 1966 to 1982. Again, very similar type nominal returns over that time horizon. And then before that, from the late 20s to the late 40s. Now, in between those secular bear markets from the late 40s to the mid-60s was a great secular bull market. And then from the mid-60s to 82, again, a secular bear followed by a secular bull. So my view has been that starting in 2016, we started a secular bull market. And if history is a guide and that pattern holds, you should see well above average returns into the early 30s. So the first reason for being optimistic about returns is a historical pattern of returns. The second is looking at if you believe that capital goes where it's treated best, then 
the question of where to allocate capital right now is giving a very clear answer, which is towards equities. And the way I think about that is to look at the free cash flow yield of equities compared to the free cash flow yield of the other asset classes, cash, which is essentially giving you zero, and long-term bonds, which are almost also giving you zero. And so the free cash flow yield of equities relative to alternatives is at or near historic highs right now. And so that's the second leg of the thesis. The third is looking at investor behavior. And what you've seen in the tail ends of secular bull markets when everyone gets bullish, but I think of the late 90s and 2000s, massive amounts of flows go into equities and very little goes into fixed income. Right now, we're seeing exactly the opposite. Even this year, Alex, you mentioned that we're making new highs on the S&P. We're seeing record outflows from equities. We're seeing strong inflows into fixed income. And that's been the case for a while. So from a psychological perspective, investors are not all in on equities. In fact, they're very far from it. And the last point is about productivity and demographics. Most people look at the aging demographics and think that's going to be a headwind for equities. But if you look, and this comes out of a paper by the Brookings Institute, and you overlay the secular bull markets I talked about with what they call the my ratio, which is middle-aged workers to young workers in the economy, what you'll see is when that ratio is increasing, in other words, the ratio of middle-aged workers to the young workers is increasing, that has been very positive for equities. And they have two reasons why they believe that's the case. First, it's that middle-aged workers, they're saving with a long duration or investing with a long duration. They're trying to save for retirement. They're trying to save for their kids' educations and so on. So they need long-duration assets. The long-duration asset is equities. And therefore, there's almost a disproportionate buyer of equities that's going to be a bigger part of the population. And the second is ties to the productivity argument, which is middle-aged workers, and in this paper, I think it was 35 to 50-year-olds, they tend to be experienced in their job. They tend to be well-trained. They tend to be very serious about their profession because they're trying to build their career at that time. And so productivity also benefits. So when you get both demographics leading to an increased demand for equities and economic stimulus that comes from higher productivity, all of that is good for equities. And so those are the four key reasons why we believe that we're going to be in a secular bull market. None of those have changed to your question about has anything changed. In fact, in the paper, I go through frequently asked questions. And the very first question I address in the paper is, do you believe that we're going to just go straight up from here to the early 2030s? And I think the answer is absolutely not. We're going to have some serious corrections. But I also remember, this is a year ago, I also wrote that we're going to have bear markets, just like we did from 82 to 2000. We had the crash of 87. We had the first Gulf War. We had the Russian financial crisis, Asian financial crisis, SNL. It wasn't a great uninterrupted period without any setbacks for 18 years. But In a secular bull market, you should see the market bounce back fairly rapidly and make new highs fairly rapidly. Whereas in secular bear markets, the markets tend to go down for a while, 
and then they don't recover that rapidly. And that's exactly what we've seen this year. Of course, I didn't know there was going to be a pandemic. But if anyone had said at the beginning of the year, we're going to have this massive pandemic and a huge surge in unemployment and economic activity is going to grind to a halt on a global basis, do you think the S&P can make a new all-time high? I'd venture to say that most people would not take that bet. But in a secular bull market, you see exactly what we've witnessed. And so, if anything, I would say the hypothesis or the paper that I laid out, this was about as good a test as you could have had for the secular bull market view. And so far, we've passed that. So, if anything, I have more confidence in it, just given what's happened in terms of the virus, the economic hit, and then the bounce back in the market. That's really great. And I actually fall right into one of your points in terms of being a middle-aged worker with a kid, saving for retirement, starting a 529 plan, and looking for long-term investments and sort of heading towards equities. So that definitely backs that up. So 10 to 12 years out, the S&P 500 is at 10,000. Again, that would be amazing. But let's bring it back for a second to 2020. Can you spend a few minutes discussing what you're seeing in the equity markets right now and what's driving these markets? We're on an extended growth run. Do you have any thoughts and views on the magnitude of this run? Yeah, there's a lot in that question. So let me touch on a couple of points. Yes, if we look from the bottom on March 23rd, the S&P looks like it's up dramatically. But if we go back to the beginning of 2018, the S&P is up something like 25% over two and a half years, which is good. It's not bad, but it's nothing spectacular. And so I think a lot of times these ideas about what the market has done get very much skewed by the starting point and the ending point. And so, yes, the market has had a very good recovery from the virus scare. So let's maybe talk about why that might be. And I'm going to get just very mechanistic about this. And if we think of stocks as a discounted cash flow or the value of cash flows over time discounted back to today, then we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Are cash flows disrupted in 2020? Yes. Are they going to be disrupted in 2021? Very likely. Beyond that, and I've felt this for a while, there's going to be a pretty good recovery past 2021. So the long-term value of equities lies in the terminal value and much more in out years than just the next year or two. Meanwhile, the discount rate has come down dramatically. And so if there isn't that much change on the numerator, i.e. the cash flow stream over time has not really changed that much, and then the denominator becomes smaller, mathematically, the value of equities should be higher, not lower. And then going back to that idea I just talked about in the secular bull market, and this ties into that, which is capital goes where it's treated best. If what you're seeing is depressed equity values while the long-term cash flows are not that impaired, and what you can get in the bond market in terms of long-term yields has gone down dramatically, again, the relative free cash flow yield on equities just went dramatically up. And so for both of those reasons, I think we've seen the snapback in equities as investors recognized mathematically what was happening. So that's the broader market. Then you also asked me about the growth run. And we don't buy a ticker called growth. We buy individual companies. 
And what is at the heart of our process is we're looking for individual companies where we think the company can exceed the expectations that the market has for that company. And so there are some pockets that have done quite well over the last several years. Think of software as a service as an area where we've been pairing our position sizes back, even though we like the fundamentals. And in fact, some of those fundamentals have been boosted by what's happened this year. Despite that, we're pairing some of those back. But there are other parts within our universe, which is quite large and it's very heterogeneous, where we're finding opportunities, be it in consumer, in healthcare, in industrial. So I would say that, yes, there are always going to be some parts of the market that seem a bit more extended and others that have more opportunity. I think that the same holds now. Maybe one slight difference is that some of the stocks that have done quite well are among the largest weights in the benchmark. But we recognize that as well. And we have a pretty substantial underweight in a lot of the FANG cohort if taken together. And we've had that all year. Despite that, we've been able to more than keep up with the benchmark. Okay, so looking more into the portfolios, it's become critical that investors invest in innovation within them. Do you have any examples of something that might be the next disruptive platform or technology, things like a Tesla that everyone's talking about or Square that's changed how payments are made? You know, something that five years from now, people are going to say, this was right in front of me. I thought it was good. I just underestimated how it was going to change the market. I would say we try and embed a lot of humility into our process. And um, if I knew with great specificity what that was going to be, uh, obviously we'd be all in on those, but we are seeking those. And one area that I think might be poised for exceeding expectations for the next several years and maybe longer is in healthcare. And I'll touch on one company that we own. It's called Dexcom. And what they are is they're a maker of continuous glucose monitors or devices that continuously monitor glucose levels. And this is used right now by type 1 diabetics primarily, which is a big population, but is much smaller than the type 2 diabetes population, which the company is going after. But if we step back, I believe that over the next decade or so, that Many of us on this call will have some sort of device attached to it, regardless of whether we have diabetes or not. We may be perfectly healthy, but that may be something that we do for all year or part of the year in order to almost anticipate problems. And if it doesn't happen in 10 years, I think it's almost certainly going to happen in 15 years, where we're going to look back at the fact that we monitor homes, we have car alarms, but we don't have body alarms. I think we're going to have body alarms over time. So when I think about a company that is poised to benefit from that, Dexcom is very well positioned. So maybe to step back just for 30 seconds, what we look for in companies, I also already mentioned that we look for companies that can exceed market expectations. Maybe another way of framing that is we look for companies that are going after large and growing addressable markets that are undergoing change. So we think change within a potentially large addressable market creates long-lived opportunities. The second thing we look for are competitive advantages that allow these companies to beat peers and accelerate market share gains. And the third thing we look for is we look for companies, stocks that have good price momentum. 
And it really goes back to that idea of humility. We don't want to be stuck in a stock that we think is great, but no one else in the market is buying because of time value of money. But maybe even more importantly, we don't want to be buying more and more of a stock that's underperforming the market because we love it. If the rest of the market where we think there's a lot of inherent wisdom is selling that stock. So price momentum helps us navigate or embed humility into our process. So if we take that framework and apply it to Dexcom, right now they're only primarily targeting type 1 diabetes, primarily within the U.S. Type 2 diabetes is a much, much larger market within the U.S. And they have a global opportunity where diabetes is projected to be one of the worst diseases. And this is a company that can actually really impact the outcomes of patients. And in fact, United Healthcare has done a trial with them where they show real clinical benefits for having their participants use a Dexcom device. And so addressable market is massive. Their competitive advantages are they have a better ability to read blood glucose levels, and they're already investing in reading other levels within the blood to become this body alarm, so to speak, over time. And then another competitive advantage is it's very difficult to manufacture these devices. And Dexcom has a great deal of experience over many years doing exactly that. So both the chemical technology that they have and the manufacturing technology are going to be barriers to entry. And then finally, in terms of price performance and relative strength, this has been a really good stock. We got involved in it when it was about $80 a share, and it's now over $400 a share. But our view is the greatest stocks go up before they go up a lot more. They have to almost definitionally. And we've done well with Dexcom, but we think there's a lot more ahead. We really think that the innovation, not just with Dexcom, but that there's a great deal of potential in biological innovation over the next decade or two. So we're keeping a close eye on those companies which are poised to benefit from that. I think that's a great example, and I'm definitely going to keep my eye on Dexcom coming forward and follow up with you on that one. So I think we can all agree that this pandemic has accelerated some secular growth trends that were already in place. Can you share your views on that? Things like accelerated digital transformation occurring within large enterprises, utilization of AI, machine learning, data analytics. Do you have a few comments around that? Yeah, I mean, I think for sure, as I said earlier, some of the companies that we've been invested in for some time, because we've seen data analytics, we've seen software as a service be very well poised, and we were invested in these stocks, some of them many years ago, and some of them starting three or four years ago. As I'm describing looking forward, we see a lot of opportunity in healthcare. A few years ago, we saw a lot of opportunity in software as a service, and absolutely, it's been accelerated by what's happened. And one of the key elements of what's happened is not just that it's happened, but the duration of the change has caused behavioral shifts on the part of consumers, on the part of companies. I mean, imagine in the middle of March, essentially a huge swath of the workforce started working from home almost on a dime. And to me, it's one of the great miracles of modern technology that we were all able to shift, you know, those of us who were able to shift to working from home. I mean, we're talking about tens of millions of people doing it essentially over the course of a day or two or maybe a week. And so I think it goes to highlight how much we depend upon technology 
how robust our communications infrastructure is. And given that now we're five months into that, I think it's creating some real potential for behavioral changes. And that's what we're really focused on is some of these companies, the software companies and the internet companies, the stocks reflect a lot of good news. And even though we like the opportunity going forward, we don't have as much in those areas. We are finding other areas. You mentioned data analytics. We think that's one of the mega trends that's happening is the collection and analysis of data to drive business processes and competitive advantage. We think really hit the knee of the curve in 2016 with NVIDIA. And we think it's going to be something that continues to have incredible importance for the next 5, 10, potentially 15 years or longer. So semiconductors, again, a part of technology that's not in the limelight right now, it was an area that we got heavily involved in 2016. But by early 2018, those stocks had done exceptionally well. And we reduced our position, even though we liked them long term. And then more recently, in the last six months or so, We've increased our position in semiconductors because other parts of technology have done really well. The semis have lagged a bit. And so it really goes to, I think, the recurring theme for the last three questions is we're looking for ideas or companies where we see a differentiated future in terms of their potential relative to what we think the market is pricing in. In the end, that is the heart of what we're doing. Let's shift gears for a moment and move over to the upcoming election. Do you have any thoughts on the potential impact on equities and potential for regulation impacts on tech companies? Well, I think we've still got about two and a half months or so, maybe a little less than that now, before the elections. And we don't plan around who's going to be in office because in the end, what we want is to find companies that are going to be robust enough to thrive independent of the administration. So that's not at the heart of what we do, but taking a look at the electoral landscape, I guess a couple of comments. First, I think that from a broad investment perspective, there are probably some pros and cons to whether President Trump gets reelected or whether Vice President Biden wins in November. And I guess a lot of it will depend also not just on the presidential election, but what happens with the makeup of the House and Senate. But in the case of a Democratic sweep, changes around tax policy may be perceived negatively by investors, especially if something that isn't high on the list, but I've seen mentioned about capital gains taxes increasing or a financial transaction tax. To the extent that those start being talked about, discussed much more, I think that could have a negative impact. On the other hand, what we may see is common relations with China, whether one likes that or not, but common relations with China, which may put some of those people that are nervous that the global supply chain could be disrupted by President Trump if he got reelected and felt that there was nothing to hold him back from being more aggressive in dealing with China. And then with President Trump, that's one of the risks that the status of globalization that has been in place really for the last two or three decades, longer, maybe it'll get disrupted under President Trump if he felt there was nothing else for him to hold back on moving more aggressively on trade policy. 
But conversely, you probably have a more friendly regulatory environment in D.C., as well as better tax policy. So taking all of that, I'd say it's very difficult to make a clear case for why one or the other would be all in better or worse for the market. I think they're puts and takes with both candidates. And so we haven't spent a tremendous amount of time either this election or in any of the prior elections. We don't think that's our strength. And we really try and stay away from areas that we don't feel we have an edge in and we don't feel that we have an edge in. I think you also asked about regulation. I think that it's unclear to me on the regulatory front which candidate or which approach, a Democratic approach or a Republican approach, is pro-certain companies or anti-certain companies. I think one of the things that's very difficult now is that there are a number of companies. So if we look back in the past, IBM, Microsoft, AT&T, in the last few decades, they were among the mega companies that went through strict regulatory scrutiny by the government. I think those companies... There was not an equivalent company to IBM when IBM was the dominant computing company or to AT&T when it was the dominant communications company or to Microsoft in software. But now we really have Apple, which is a mega company, but then we also have Microsoft and Amazon, Google and Facebook. So we've got numerous mega companies that are existing simultaneously and they're encroaching on each other's service. And so you've got five companies that are massive in size and market cap that are encroaching and trying to compete with each other. And then you've got others like Snapchat and TikTok and others that are also finding ways of breaching that stronghold. And so I think it's going to be a little bit difficult for the government to really go after one of these companies because they may end up advantaging others within that cohort. The other thing from a nationalistic perspective is that all these companies are obviously American. And I don't see a U.S. government seriously crimping an American company at the expense of now we're seeing Alibaba and Tencent and some fairly strong and aggressive Chinese companies come up. And I'm not sure that the American government is going to want to really sort of handicap American companies when they're major Chinese companies that may end up benefiting from that. So it's a very complicated dynamic, and we're watching it, obviously, very closely. But I don't know that one or the other party is clearly better or worse for these companies from a regulatory perspective. Thanks, Gary. You know, it's funny, when I was preparing these questions and thinking about the election, I remember back in 2016, sitting there on election night and watching the futures market trade off 750 points when it became clear that Trump was going to win. And then obviously that swung back. And I was just thinking back then, I thought that was so volatile. And then you go into March and April this year, and that was almost like a nightly occurrence. So it, it sort of puts into perspective just how volatile March and April were from an overall perspective. I did get a question emailed in. It's from Tim B. He said that you mentioned the FANG stocks that you were underway to them. And he heard a stat a few weeks ago that the FANG stocks were up a very large percentage, while the rest of the S&P 500 was essentially flat. So those stocks obviously have driven a, a large amount of the comeback. How do you address that in your portfolio? I think there's talk about concentration or a small cohort of stocks that have done well. 
when I look at the statistics, that's actually not borne out. There's wider participation in the market than is commonly believed. Having said that, the heavy components of the benchmark have done quite well. Apple has done exceptionally well. Microsoft has done very well. And Facebook has done quite well this year. Alphabet has been a decent performer, but nothing special. Similarly with Netflix, it's been a good stock as well. Certainly over time, it's been an outstanding stock. And so we don't think about FANG just like we don't buy growth. We just look at each individual company on its own merits. Amazon's done well as well. And one of the ways we sell or trim back on companies, because I went through a little bit of the buy process before, is what we look for is when we believe that expectations have gotten elevated. And the way we think about higher embedded expectations is this is one of the ways um, we use multiple frameworks. But one of the ways we think about it is the longer a stock has outperformed, so the duration of outperformance, we also look at the magnitude of outperformance and then the market cap of the company. Think of those as three different vectors or variables. And if you multiply those three and you get a really large sum, then that is something to be concerned about. So our approach to these companies, we've increased Facebook this year while we've decreased some Amazon, as an example, and Google. We're just dealing with each of them as individual ideas. We recognize that they're bigger parts of the benchmark, but I'm not too bothered by the performance of the FANG stocks because I think there's actual meaningful heterogeneity within those companies in terms of their performance this year. And I think that's because they have different exposures in terms of fundamentals and benefits and drawbacks from COVID and their execution and the decisions they've made over time. And so that's not what concerns me about the market is the FANG stocks have driven it because I see much broader participation starting to happen over the last four months or so. Great. The general consensus right now, you hear lots of people talking about inflation. If the policy response to COVID-19 is going to lead to longer-term inflation, if it does, how do you expect that to affect equity returns? And if you start to see inflation tick up, would there be any big changes or shifts in your portfolio? I think Milton Friedman once said, Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So I think those people that are pointing to potential inflation are looking at what's happened with money supply. And I make a couple of observations. Virtually no one who's investing today has not invested during a bond bull market, which started roughly 40 years ago. So we've had a 40-year bond bull market. Perhaps it's going to continue. But I look at, you know, using that same framework of how long something has worked, how well it's done, and how much capital is tied up in that. That would make me think that maybe the best days of the bond market are behind it. It would not necessarily mean, though, that if we saw some inflation, that it would be bad for equities. And from the late 40s to the mid-60s, what you saw was a setup that's actually very similar to today. We saw very high levels of government debt after World War II. We saw very low levels on the 10-year bond. The last time we were at similar levels was in the late 40s. 
to where we are today. And then from there to the mid-60s, you saw inflation go up. You saw the 10-year bond yield rise from below 1%, I think, or maybe low 1% in the late 1940s to, I think it was maybe 5% or higher by the mid-60s. So you saw a pronounced increase in terms of percentage-wise in the 10-year bond at that time, which coincided with a great time for equities. And the reason I make that point is that I think eventually by the late 60s, and especially in the 70s, inflation got to such a high level that it was deleterious for stocks. But I think that we're a long way from that point. And so I'm not concerned about inflation and how it might affect equity values at this point in time. Obviously, if it just shoots up and goes to incredible levels in a very short period, yes, that will be a problem. I don't foresee that, but I do think there's at least a chance that over the next several years, inflation surprises to the upside. And I think very few people are set up for that. And a lot of what we try and think about is to think of circumstances that maybe people are not paying that much attention to that could have an outside impact. And so we are actually paying attention to indications of inflation. Gold prices have gone up quite a bit. Some of the resource-driven companies are acting quite well. And so there are definitely signs that we're paying attention to. I don't know that that would cause a wholesale change in our portfolio. Again, we're not going to make a change because we're predicting inflation. We're going to find companies that we think are really well positioned. And by the way, if inflation goes up, they may benefit. But we're not going to buy a company or a stock simply because we're going to make a bet on the direction of inflation. That's just not our approach or process. Thank you. I hope everyone enjoys today's call. Thank you, as always, for your participation. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. 
to the extent permitted by applicable law. We may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by JP Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.